It is such a pleasure to be hosting Layla. Um, I did an event with her uh, earlier this year and she was just the most eloquent speaker. So it's very easy for me as a moderator to do this. She obviously needs no introduction, but I will introduce her anyway. Um, so Layla Saad is a writer, speaker and podcast host on race, identity, leadership, personal transformation and social change. As an East African Arab, British, black, Muslim woman who was born in the West and lives in the Middle East. Layla has always sat at this unique intersection of identities. Her last book, um, which I'm sure you all already know and have probably read, Me and White Supremacy, was published in January. And it spent six consecutive weeks on the Sunday Times bestseller charts and also became a New York Times bestseller. It sold 115,000 copies, and I'm sure even more since the time that I wrote, I wrote this blurb. Um, it encourages readers with white privilege to examine the ways in which they benefit from it. And in the process, I think it really has become a handbook for real change all over the world. And it's this process that continues in Layla's new book, Me and White Supremacy, a guided journal, which really is a perfect accompaniment um, to her first book. So Layla, thank you so much for being here. It's such a pleasure to be in conversation with you. I just wanted to start by asking what inspired you to write Me and White Supremacy and why at this particular moment? Yeah, well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here with you uh, back again, Angela. I so enjoyed our conversation earlier this year. I know this is going to be great as well. Um, so recently I was asked, you know, um, if, so, you know, Me and White Supremacy was published earlier this year, but it obviously took off in an even bigger way um, during the summer um, in direct uh, response to the murder of George Floyd and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I've been asked in many different ways, you know, um, a variation of a question of how did you know this is an appropriate book to write at this time? Um, but Me and White Supremacy started as an Instagram challenge two years ago. And I often remind people that there have been so many writers and educators all over the world for decades, for centuries, who have written in various ways about white supremacy and have tried to provide it to provide tools um, to create change, to create an anti-racist world. And so me and white supremacy is just part of that legacy, part of that group of people who are trying to do their part. Um, me and White Supremacy started two years ago as an Instagram challenge, ran across 28 days. It was really born out of curiosity for me. I had been talking about race and white supremacy for almost a year before that online, which is a very challenging thing to do, <laughs> as you know. And um, But I had noticed a shift in people's understanding of what white supremacy was. And um, I had wondered what have they learned about themselves and white supremacy in that time? And so that's where the question, what have you learned about you and you know, white supremacy comes from? Um, and so I ran it as a 28 day challenge each day, exploring a different aspect of white supremacy, especially the ways it shows up just in our individual lives, just in our personal lives, not really looking at the institutional, the systemic, which is very, very important, but isn't the area that I um, focus on. Um, and it became, um, a, in many ways, a, a curriculum that people were using. Um, I turned it into a workbook later on that year, um, 
published it as a digital download for free. Um, almost 100,000 people downloaded that in the space of six months and then uh, published earlier this year, the hardback um, audible, you know, the audio book, uh, the, uh, the ebook, um, and it's continued to just grow. And it's incredible seeing the different spaces and places that it's used in. I've seen it used by people who are beginners to any kind of language around anti-racism, but I've also seen it used by people who have been in the work for some time or who maybe are familiar with some of the terms and, and think that, oh, I've got this handled, I've got this down. And they um, do the exercises and they realize I'm not as far along as I thought I was. Yeah, and I felt that myself, I think, when I was reading it, as, as, as much as I feel myself to be enlightened about race, I think there's so much to learn in the way that you structure it. It really is a kind of day by day, here's one challenge for you, here's a way to think through it and then go on to the next day. But can you, uh, I mean, it really does hold the reader's hand, I think all the way through, but can you just for the very basics, unpick what you mean by white supremacy? What is that? Yes, so people hear the word white supremacy and if it's the first time they're hearing it in the context we're talking about it in, um, they associate it with men in white robes, uh, the Ku Klux Klan, you know, white nationalists, um, and people who consciously, purposely, intentionally choose racism, choose to believe that uh, white people are the superior race. But white supremacy is this, is this ideology that people who are white, um, who have, who are white skinned are superior to people of other races and therefore they deserve to dominate over people of other races. And that shows up in various different ways. So yes, it shows up as the KKK and white, white nationalism, but, but it also shows up in the, in the way the world is structured, in our history, it shows up in our interpersonal relationships, it shows up in racial microaggressions. And as mean white supremacy shows, it may not be a, an ideology that the people who are choosing to do this work consciously ascribe to. They don't consciously believe that they are the superior race, um, but it comes up in their behavior. And the reason it comes up in their behavior is because we live in a white supremacist society that is constantly reinforcing to people that, to all people, it's constantly reinforcing to all people that white people are superior to people of other races. Um, and so when you have a world that is structured like that and it's, it's just what is normal, white superiority, white um, supremacy shows up as the norm, even if we don't want it to be the norm. Um, and so some of the, so just to make it a little bit more uh, granular, some of the ways that that shows up that I speak about in the book, for example, is um, tone policing. So tone policing is a, a type of behavior where um, people who are white will, will often try to dictate to black people, people of color, what is the correct tone of voice to use um, when speaking about things, especially when speaking about race, but often when speaking about anything. This is, you know, this is what is civilized, this is what is professional, this is what is the right tone to use if you want people to think you're credible, if you want people to believe you, if you want people to join you know, your fight, this is the way that you should be presenting yourself. And when we think about myself as a black woman, you know, I, I talked about how hard it is to talk about race um, online, in life, but online, it's because people assume that 
um, because I'm a black woman, that I'm an angry black woman because I'm talking about race. There's a stereotype that is attached to it. And so no matter how eloquently, articulately, calmly I talk about this subject, I still get, um, you know, accusations of she's just angry. You know, she's just she's just full of rage. She doesn't want to hear the other side. Um, and that's that's just an, an ordinary way that it just shows up every day. Yeah, I can so relate to that. I remember when Superior came out last year, there was a review of the book um, by a white male journalist. And he implied in this review that I couldn't be um, objective, right. objective <laughs> about this topic because right. I was a brown woman, you know, that, that uh, implying, of course, also that a white person would be better placed to write a book about the science of race than I would be just no matter how referenced, well re- referenced it was, right. no matter how thorough, it would right. make no difference just because of who, you, who I am. And I guess this is, must be something that you encounter all the time online. Yes, it's something I mean, that, that so many, um, you know, black and brown people encounter everywhere all the time, um, whether it's, whether they are a public figure like me, or it's going into work and having to bite your tongue and not say, um, you know, this, this thing, this behavior is not okay, because it makes me feel uncomfortable and it's racist, because there could be re- repercussions for you if you do that. Um, so it's it, it's something that we're constantly having to navigate, but it's so a part of the norm um, that we carry, and it's so a part of the norm that people who uh, are white or who have white privilege do not have never had to think about because being white within a white supremacist society is to be is seen to be raceless and is seen to not have any consequences. Um, there's no negative consequences of being white in this in this world that we have today. I mean, a lot of the sensitivity around issues to do with race is that when we use words like racist or privilege, they have they have layers of meaning around yes. them, and they can they're very easily misinterpreted. And white privilege, in particular, is one of those phrases. So, can you explain to us how do you explain to people how white privilege manifests, especially among those people who might feel themselves, even, despite being white, having very hard lives you know even yeah, if you come from yeah. a very difficult background you may be living in poverty in what way then does privilege they may be asking you know when, what way does privilege manifest in my life I, th- I think yeah. there's a number of things that people um that would be helpful for people to understand this concept I think first of all it's important to understand that none of us are defined by a single part of our identity so yes I'm a, a black woman but that doesn't mean that my only experience is anti-black racism you know, I'm also straight, which means I have straight privilege. I'm, I'm cisgendered. I have cisgender privilege. I'm able-bodied. I have able-bodied pri- privilege. Um, I have a, you know, uh, a university education. So there's various ways that I am um, privileged and I experience privilege in the world. And there's areas in which I don't and being black is, is one of them. Um, and so, so that's very important to understand that we have We are multifaceted human beings who through some parts of our identity experience marginalization and discrimination in the the world we have today. And in some other parts of our identities um, do not and instead have power and privilege, which consciously or unconsciously we use. And uh, it's the norm for us to use it. Uh, The second part is that white privilege, uh, sort of linking on from this, white privilege is not the same as economic privilege. Being white doesn't mean that you 
doesn't mean that you've had a life where you have lots of money and you live in a castle and you never had to struggle and life has been so easy for you and you've not had any, you know, that they're not the same thing. Um, yes, there are links, but no, you know, we completely understand that there are white people who do not have economic privilege and other privileges, but being white is an immediate privilege that we can see when we look at somebody and it does create an extra level of safety and ease that people who have the same identities, maybe who are also poor, who are also disabled, but who are not white, wouldn't be able to have. So that's the, the second thing. The third thing I think is that people feel comfortable understanding other privileges. So they understand there's able-bodied privilege or there's straight privilege, gender privilege. Um, white privilege is always the one that causes such a strong reaction. And I think, um, and I'm sure you would agree, <laughs> it's because white people are not used to being called white and that we are pointing to the system when we say white. And so it creates such a defensive reaction that isn't the same when you say to somebody, you have able-bodied privilege. When you say you have white privilege, lots of things come up, guilt, shame, you know, um, a, a feeling like you're being told that you're wrong or that you're bad for being the, the, the color of skin that you are. And the irony is that having white privilege in this world is, you know, is, is the ticket, right? Like that's the thing that we're all supposed to be striving towards um, having and uh, even though we cannot have it, um, but for those people who have it, when it is pointed out, it feels like a reversal, like you're being racist to me. You are now being racist to me by pointing out my race. And pointing out somebody's race um, is, not, is not racist. Um, what we are pointing to is the fact that people who look like you, because we are one race, the human race, but people who have less melanin in their skin, little melanin in their skin, um, have, have privileges that, that others don't. Um, so that, those are the three sort of concepts that I think are very important to, for people to understand around white privilege. And do you feel that when you're communicating this to people, can you see that light go on in their heads? Can you, can you notice a difference um, when they're processing yeah. I think, I think, you know, there's, there's certain things that people might say. So for example, you know, one of my peers, my contemporaries, Rachel Cargill, she does a lot of work in the US around um, white feminism and has been able to um, explain again and again to white women that the experience of uh, that white women talk about in regards to oppression from white men is the same as our experience with them. It's not the same, but it's something that can be used as an example. And I think people get it intellectually at that point, they get it as a concept, but until they really do the work, um, and when I say do the work, I mean the self-reflective work, I still don't think they get the depths of it. Um, and there's still definitely a separation of yes, okay, I'll accept that I have white privilege, but I'm not racist like those people are racist because I don't consciously choose to have racist thoughts or beliefs or behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, while that may be the, tru the, the, the truth, 
The fact of the matter is that black and brown people are being harmed every single day by various types of racism that wear and tear away at us physically, um, emotionally and spiritually. So that could be, yes, the racism of being called um, a racial slur by an outright racist, but it can also be um, more of that uh, like uh, emotional um, harm that happens with friends and family who say things or do things that are microaggressions that they don't even realize, but are very hurtful. Um, and of course, by institutional and systemic racism. So there's no such thing as sort of racism light. It's not, this is a better type of racism than that racism. None of it should exist. All of it is harmful. Um, yes, harmful to different degrees is definitely a difference between being murdered um, and be and having uh, somebody tone police you mm. but all of it wears away at your dignity and this work is all about restoring um, the recognition of the dignity of black and brown people and you were just mentioning there about white feminism I think there is there has been a tendency historically to dis to uh, separate out the different forms of oppression that exist, that everything is seen to be solvable independently. Mm. Um, but you very carefully kind of don't fall into that trap where in, in your book. You, you understand that there are intersections here, that there are nuances in the way that these things play out. I mean, I was just interviewing this woman this morning. She's an Egyptologist, an Egyptian Egyptologist. And she was saying that... Um, she sometimes gets so frustrated at these misconceptions that even though we have such a good understanding of women's status in ancient Egypt, that people in the West, when they write about modern day Egypt, they just assume that all women are oppressed and they never had any rights and that the West has been leading the way when it comes to equality on every single measure. Right. Whereas actually things are more complicated there. And you, you're, I mean, your living experience shows that because yeah. you carry these different identities. Can you talk a bit about those different intersections and how they work? Yeah, I think the West and sort of Western consciousness is so used to seeing itself as the um, as the as the leader, right? And and that's very de deliberate, right? That's that's a very deliberate narrative of um, black and brown cultures being primitive, being backwards, um, needing to be saved, needing to be educated and civilized by, by white people. And so um, it, it still continues on today, right? Just in more uh, complex and nuanced ways. But, you know, I remember a few years ago, and this is when I was still, um, it was pre me, sort of publicly talking about race or anything like that. And I used to be in a lot of circles of white women and they were very much about feminism and what I recognize now as white feminism. And I would often see this quote shared uh, by the Dalai Lama about the world will be saved by the Western woman. <sighs> Right. And so I would see it and it would just rub me the wrong way every single time. And I could see all the white women around me were just so inspired by it. But every time I thought about it, I was like, what does that mean? Um, and, and what would irk me was the glee with which white women would share and talk about that quote. And for me, it, what it highlighted was this idea or this understanding that white women really don't know anything or very much about women in other parts of the world and the work that we have been doing for our liberation for centuries. Um, 
and that there is this um, real desire to be seen as the superhero of, uh, uh, you know, of everyone. Um, while, you know, and we've seen it this year uh, in the US where there's been this, um, we've seen that a lot of the groundwork that has been laid to create the change that's happening now there has been by black women and women of color. And so black women and women of color are the ones who are actually doing that hard work that's needed, but oftentimes it's white women who want to take the um, reward for it uh, and, and place themselves as, as the heroes. And so there's, there's just so many, there's so many nuanced ways that it shows up. Um, but when you see black and brown people, if you have white privilege and you see black and brown people as lesser than you, as inferior than you, it's hard to understand or to accept that there may be ways actually that they are more progressive, whatever that means, right? More progressive than you are. And that there are things that actually they could be teaching you um, that um, it would be impossible to, to accept unless you're willing to really look at the, how you see yourself as superior. Um, so yeah, it's, it's something that I know that a lot of women of color outside of the West feel really frustrated with. I know that I live in the Middle East, there are a lot of, you know, um, untrue misconceptions or, you know, uh, understandings of Arab women as being oppressed, as not having a mind of their own, as, as not being able to do anything for themselves. And it just couldn't be further from the truth. Um, and it, it just really frustrates me. <laughs> it really frustrates me. <laughs> well, I want to hear more about that because I think I share your frustration. I, I get... I mean, especially in my field in science, um, there's often this assumption that women scientists in Europe must have the have more privileges and more freedoms than any other women in the world, when actually the rates of women in science technology are lowest in Europe, and they're higher in the Middle East, in Asia and South America. Um, and that confuses people because they don't know how to understand that, that. <laughs> I mean for you then as a Muslim woman in particular because there are so many stereotypes that people have about Muslim women especially here in the UK then you know what what can you say to explain to people that what these nuances are yeah and I mean first of all that Muslim people are people of any and all races um that um, we are so different, each one of us, just like everybody else. And that that shouldn't be a, um, a stereotype, and no stereotype should exist, but the one, the one that we're talking about here is, is the one around Muslims. Um, and when I say Muslims, I'm gonna say it as Arab Muslims, because I think that's the picture that people have in their mind when they think of Muslims, even though Muslims can be white, it can be, they can be any culture. Um, I think it's decentering, it's, it's learning how to decenter the white Western worldview as the only worldview or the worldview that is the most comprehensive of the world. Um, the rest of the world are often having to adjust ourselves to look at what's happening in the US, but it doesn't, it doesn't happen the other way around. Like nobody's looking over this side and there are a lot of, there are a lot of amazing things happening over here. And so I think it starts with really questioning, like what have I been taught is true? That maybe there are other truths as well that are as true as the truths that I know. Um, and it starts really young, right? So when we study in school, you know, I, I British went through the British curriculum, my kids do too. We study ancient cultures 
and then we go straight into sort of like the world wars and, and things like that and and nothing around colonial I didn't study anything <laughs> around colonialism at all but even all that big gap between ancient Greece right. and Rome and the enlightenment it's almost as right. though nothing happened nothing <laughs> happened nothing in the pre-colonial times yeah. that weren't yeah. ancient times yeah. um that tell us that uh you know especially with um, I'm African so especially with Africa that Africa's history didn't really like there was Egypt and then Africa's history started with slavery and nothing else like so we didn't have culture we didn't have architecture we didn't have science we didn't have feminism we didn't have anything before western culture came and started our culture and so I think it really starts with questioning what haven't I been taught um, that I need to know about and you know I'm uh, obviously as a writer and yourself will be the same. I'm a natural student. I love to study all the time. I know that comes naturally to me and I love to go and investigate and find things out. Um, but there are also great writers like yourselves who have put together these books that lay it out for us, that help us to see the missing pieces, the parts of history that we have not been taught, um, that are brand new information to us, but that have always been there. And I just think um, we live in a world that, like I said, makes white people superior and everybody else's cultures don't matter or don't, don't exist outside of its relationship with whiteness. And that's just not the truth. Yeah, and clearly there's a big chunk of history there that we're ignoring and the contributions of other cultures. I organised, I remember at the beginning of this year, before the lockdown started, an event at one of the big museums in, in the UK on who owns science. Mm. And we had someone from the Middle East, we had someone from Asia talking about all the wonderful science, technology, knowledge, mathematics, the huge contributions that people outside Europe were making to what became European science, what we now understand as right. we now call Western European science. And there are efforts, just as you say, there are efforts to decolonize curricula now to broaden things out and fill that gap of what we don't know. What do you think about those efforts and what, what are the best ways to do that, do you think? Oh, I think that's so important. I mean, it's just as a parent, um, my kids go to British schools and this isn't something, I mean, they're it, not much has changed from when I was in school to now, right, in the, the way things are taught. Um, so I, as a parent, make a, a, an active choice to every now and then just drop little tidbits of information to my kids, <laughs> just so that they know, right? So what I dropped recently was to explain to them that actually, you know, the first people were, were Black people, you know, dark-skinned people, and that be, becoming white is actually something that happened afterwards but the original people were dark skinned, right? Cause I want her, I want them to understand like the norm isn't what we're being taught, right? And, the, and, the, and, and understanding your roots is very, very important. Um, and, I, and I know that so many black and brown parents make that effort to sort of supplement, to fill the gap um, in the middle of what's not being taught. I think within the school system, you know, I'm not obviously a, an expert in that area, um, but I am writing the Young Readers edition of Me and White Supremacy at the moment. And I'm constantly thinking about how can I give them um, historical context and uh, the skill of critical thinking 
as well as the skill of being able to process their own feelings and have conversations with each other across races. And so I think those three things are very, very important. Filling in the gaps of history, what's not being taught, that is an important part of world history. Because that's the, that's the thing, right? It's like Western culture is taught as if it's, that's the world history and everything else is just um, an aside or extra, but actually the world is majority black and brown people. So we are world history, our history is the world history. Um, and so filling in the gap of what's not being taught that needs to be taught. Um, how can we help young people, kids to understand what race, ethnicity, culture, nationality are, all those different nuances um, and how the social construction of race has very real consequences in our everyday lives and then how to process those feelings around them, whether it's confusion, frustration, you know, sadness, anger, um, all of whatever comes up and then how to have those conversations with each other um, so that we, we want to we help create a world where people, you know, grow up and are able to have conversations around race without falling apart, right? Without the, the white fragility that we see today um, in, in a lot of white adults and, and without this feeling of, I'm just gonna close off from, I can't deal with them, right? We, we, we mm -hmm. have to get free together um, and we need to prepare young people for, for how to do that. And that means giving them skills. I mean, one of the issues, of course, is that um, there is a lot of resistance to this kind of broadening up of the curriculum. There are there are people who are very nervous, for example, of the idea that we might frame historical figures in different ways in highlighting, for example, their connections to empire or slavery or historic racism, or that we might cancel people altogether, that we might say, no, we don't want this person anymore in our history. They don't have any place. Um, and that's a very vibrant debate that's happening here at the moment, especially around cancel culture. I mean, how do you feel about historic figures or statues of people who've been connected to racism, empire, slavery? Yeah, so, you know, I do a lot of, I have a podcast called Good Ancestor. The, the purpose of my work is about becoming a good ancestor. I interview people who I think are living good ancestors. Um, and something that I really focus on and really focus on within myself as well is that being a good ancestor is not being a perfect human being. It's about being this whole human being. Um, and a whole human being has many different different layers. And there's parts of our lives where we really shine and there's parts of our lives where it's really ugly and, and really not good. Um, and so when we don't own our humanity, you know, we try and resurrect these heroes and we only wanna see them in one light. And then especially when we're talking about white historical figures, we really don't wanna connect them to, like you said, empire, slavery. Um, I mean, the, uh, the event that happened in Bristol this year with the toppling um, of the uh, statue, statue. Of the Colson statue, it was like, you know, you go and read his Wikipedia profile and it was just like, yeah, he was a philanthropist and a slave owner and a da da da. Hold on, what? <laughs> How are those two things connected? No, you know, uh, what does that mean? How could he be a philanthropist and be a slave owner? And we need to be able to feel comfortable interrogating all, all the parts um, of these historical figures. Um, we do it very easily with the 
civil rights activists all the time. It's done all the time. And yet when it's white historical figures, there has to be some sort of like pristine thing around them and they're supposed to be pure and we're not supposed to question it. There's a real um, drive, I think, to that. That's a way of trying to keep white supremacy in place is not questioning empire, not questioning colonialism, not questioning what they really did and what this really meant, and what the impact is today. Um, when we're talking about cancel culture, which isn't something that I choose to talk about um, publicly, because I think it, it just, it gets split into this binary of it's either good or it's either bad. And again, I think it depends, right? It really, really depends. Should we call in or should we call out? I think it depends. Is it really canceling or is it accountability? I think it depends, right? And, yeah. and that may seem like a cop-out answer, but I don't think it is. I think it's, again, we are complex human beings. Each scenario is so unique. Um, and I don't think we yet have, we're just really beginning to, even though the work of um, anti-oppression has been done obviously for a very, very long time, we are just beginning to find the ways to really have these conversations where the uh, where what oppressed people, marginalized people are saying is being listened to. And we don't yet have the skills um, to, to be able to manage all of that, right? There's a lot of righteous anger that so many of us need to express and it is valid and important that it be honored. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, sometimes we're expecting people who have that privilege to be able to use skills that they don't yet have. If you've spent your whole life and you have white privilege and you've spent your whole life not talking about race, not knowing how to think critically about these things that we're talking about, um, you know, not knowing how to not tone police or not, you know, shrink into just such shame that you don't know what to do with it. Everything's going to feel like you're being canceled. You're, you know, you're, you're not supposed to exist. Everything about you is bad. And so we're trying to grapple with all of those things at the same time. And for me, what I think is really important for myself, this is what I give myself and try to give other people is plenty and plenty of grace because it is hard. It yes. is very, very hard. Um, and grace doesn't mean letting people harm you. It doesn't mean not holding people accountable, but it, but it does mean for me, recognizing that I am a human being, you are a human being. I know how it would affect me if, if I was in your situation. And so um, I wanna move from that place as well while understanding that I deserve to be protected. My safety is important and so on. So there's just many different layers to it. And I'm, I'm like everybody else trying to find my way, <laughs> my way through it. Um, but what I will say, I think as well, is that, you know, we can't cancel people. And a, a large part of it, sometimes when it shows up in this very much like that person, that person is canceled, we don't deal with them anymore. Um, and I don't mean when they've done something heinous, you know, purposely, I'm not talking about R. Kelly or something like that. I'm talking about someone did something and it was racist and they either meant it or didn't mean it, but it needs to be dealt with. Um, if we don't leave space for people to find redemption, 
then we don't leave space for hope. And hope is really important to me. And I found that again and again in this work, particularly this year. I've, I hit a real wall of hopelessness this year, um, just seeing everything in the world. It was too much. And I hit a place of real hopelessness. But in that place, I, I realized it's I, either I give up and just say it's it cannot be done or I have to see beyond myself and see something beyond what the world is showing me. Um, and that means channeling or rooting into things like grace, things like hope, um, things like the idea of being a good ancestor, which are the ideal that we're striving towards, but not necessarily the truth that we're, we're living right now. I just want to talk to you about that sense of hopelessness then this year that you had, what caused that? Oh, I mean, the, the Black Lives Matter protests, the murder of George Floyd, all the incidents that happened before that. And then particularly in my position, and I know that um, we have many books by black and brown authors this year do extremely well as a direct result of that. And what I experienced as part of that was really seeing a hunger for this conversation, but a hunger that is also harmful. Right. And one that wants to consume Black people, um, but not really honor us. And so what do we have? We have suddenly um, Black authors being, um, you know, on all the bestseller list. We have Black people of all sorts, whether they're in anti-racism work or not, um, suddenly being highlighted everywhere, suddenly being asked to speak on everything, um, being offered opportunities, but not with pay or dignity or honor, being seen as a trend um, and something that is used, we, we were used to show how white people were woke or how white people were you know, on the right side of history, but still being harmed behind the scenes. So you mean it's performative, that it was really it just- was a lot of performativity. And then outside of that, I think I, I was, I had to deal with a lot of anger um, because on the one hand, I'm happy my book is doing so well. On the other hand, it happened because a, a black man was lynched. Mm -hmm. And that is not something I could reconcile um, that I had very uh, strong feelings around. And um, that made me feel like, is this, what, is this right? Like, is this what I wanna be doing? You know, it, it just brought up a lot of feelings. Um, that I had to work through throughout the year. Um, and, and then, you know, we saw this sort of same bell curve with people of, of like, oh, not paying attention to this conversation. Everyone suddenly posting their Black Lives Matter statement online. And then uh, what was called, um, what was it called? Allyship fatigue happening on the other side of sort of, okay, we've been talking about this for a few weeks now. Can we talk about something else now? Can we move on? And that brought up a lot of rage for me as well that I had to work through. And it was, again, it was this feeling of, wow, like a black man could be murdered like that and everyone see it. And still we don't see the mass uh, collective sustained over a long time uh, movement that we need to see in order for real change to happen. So do you feel that what happened this summer then wasn't a permanent shift in the debate, that it is something that has now 
died away that that true gains won't be made or do you do you feel that, that we have turned a corner i think that um i think it's important to acknowledge that there have been various um civil rights uh you know big moments throughout time that should have in and of themselves created the change that we desire and they didn't um but they created they did create a shift that was needed for us to continue on um, I continue to hold a long-term view, you know, even when it was happening at the time, I, and I know many of the people I spoke with, particularly black women, sort of had this feeling of, um, it's not going to last. And it felt pessimistic to hold that position, but it also comes from experience. Uh, it's not just, we're not just pessimistic. It comes from seeing it happen again and again and again. And I, I know that I will continue to show up in my work um, because it's the work that I am called to and, and the work that I think is important. And what will create changes for all people, especially those who have privilege, to hold that same value as well, to know that it's not, it's not a one-time event. It's sustained work over time um, together. That's what changes things. Yeah, I have to admit that I also was kind of, and I hate to have to think this way, but I was waiting for the backlash, you know, when things turned a corner. So I do a lot of work with museums and scientific institutions here in the UK. And there was, what I noticed was over the summer after the murder of George Floyd, was suddenly all these doors started opening. We could have conversations we never had before. And all I was waiting for was those doors to slam shut again at some point further down the line and it's quite devastating isn't it that the I don't know if it's a new cycle or just our attention spans work in such a way I think it's various things but I think I mean yes it's the new cycles it's the way our brains are you know wired to just now like we just want change all the time but it's also how white supremacy functions Mm -hmm. you know and it it it's there's a reason why it has lasted for as long as it has and that throughout um, the years there are times when there are concessions that are made there are things where things change a little bit but not mass in the way that it needs to change Um, there are so many things that that need to happen for that sense of pessimism or that fear of the door is going to close to go away Um, and the people who I see obviously who are showing up for it um, uh, I've seen Black women always show up for this work. Um, and, you know, it's like, yes, it's inspiring, but it, but the burden also shouldn't be on us mm-hmm. to do that because yeah. we keep pushing forward anyway, but we actually, in order to push forward, because we don't have the privilege of the protection, if we push forward, but we're gonna be safe. No, we're not gonna be safe. So we push forward and it takes a toll on us over time again and again and again. And that's why I'm really strong on boundaries. I'm really strong on self-care, really strong on having um, like a sense of spiritual grounding that I root from because otherwise it, it will kill you, you know, from the inside out and, uh, I intend to live a, a long and, and thriving life. You know, I think my black life matters and I deserve to live a joyful, abundant, um, successful life now in this lifetime, even while the world doesn't yet recognize uh, mass that black lives matter. But I know that my black life matters. So I'm going to live that way. 
Self-care is something that you talk about a lot in your work. And I want to get some tips from you because I find it very difficult to cope. On, In fact, I've left Twitter and Facebook because I just find it so difficult to cope with all the abuse that I get. And it can feel, I think the outside world probably looks at you and thinks her life is great. She's doing amazing work. She's doing so well. She looks perfect. You know, everything looks great. But then what is going on behind the scenes in order for you to keep pushing in the way that you do to not give up? Yeah, so I mean, and I, like I said earlier, I have many privileges in in my life. Um, You know, my life is great in many, many ways. Um, I have an amazing family life, amazing friends. I get to do this work that I feel is my calling. Um, So yes, all of that. And um, and I particularly felt this this year, part of my hopelessness actually came when I was writing the Young Readers edition of Me and White Supremacy, um, a book that I want to be full of hope, but as I was writing it, I didn't feel it. <laughs> as I started writing it, I didn't feel it because as I'm, as I'm doing some reading to try and find ways to explain colonialism to young people, uh, it brought up so much anger and so much grief that any of this happened and that we now have to explain it to children and that we have to take something away f- from them, their sense of innocence, their sense of wonder by explaining these things. Um, so behind the scenes, um, I was catching up with a friend of mine yesterday and she's like, we haven't talked much this year. And I said, no, because, you know, I've been in that place where I need to shut off. I did not, I did not have the bandwidth to even be in conversation with you because I'm processing all of these things about how to take something that is so awful, but write it in a way that is truthful and um, offers hope at the same time. And I can't offer hope if I feel hopeless. So I have to work through all of my feelings of anger and grief and sadness and hopelessness. I have to work through it, let it work through my body, let it work through my spirit before I write it onto the page. Because my biggest regret would be to publish anything that leaves people feeling the way that I feel right now. I mean, there is there your work in some ways reminds me of you may know Jennifer Eberhardt, the psychologist um, at Stanford, um, this wonderful black American scholar who works with American police forces to combat institutional racism. And in her work, Bias, she also reaches this kind of point. There is a lot of anger. I can imagine it was uh, emotionally grueling for her to put this all down on paper and to do the work that she does but she arrives at a point of empathy Mm. and I wonder how do you reach a point of empathy then with in a world with other people who uphold these power structures that are so damaging to so many Mm. I think that um this work has really helped me in finding my own humanity. And, and, and what I mean by that is, as I have been talking about white supremacy, white privilege, what white supremacy does to white people, I've had to investigate and understand what it did to me. And so I had to really look at my own internalized oppression, my inferiority complexes, um, my sense of self-loathing. I remember last year, one of the hardest moments for me that I had was recognizing that 
in my life, yes, I'm in, impacted by white supremacy outside of myself, but actually the biggest agent of white supremacy to me in my life was me. Right? And, and what I mean by that is nobody put me down as much as I put myself down. So was nobody, this kind of internalization of the world oh, around you? 100%. 100%. And um, that took a, it took a lot of work to get to that point of understanding. Uh, and it was gut-wrenching when I recognized it, especially as somebody who is doing this work right? <laughs> and recognizing, oh, the, the villain is inside the house. It's me. But in, so, in some ways, it's more likely to happen because you're reading all these negative things all day long. Of course, they're going to have an impact on the way right, you think about yourself. It's also, it's everything throughout my entire life. I had to really examine the stories I told myself from when I was a little girl, the coping mechanisms, the survival tactics that I adopted came from trying to survive white supremacy. The things that my um, mother and my father taught us were tactics that my parents had to use to protect us from white supremacy. And so unpacking all of that leaves you, uh, it's exhausting, <laughs> first of all, it's extremely exhausting, but you arrive at a sense um, and you continue to, to, to do the work, but you, you, you get to a sense of seeing your full humanity and separating the stories that were told to you about you to the truth of who you are. Who you are. And what I found within myself was that when I recognized that space within myself, I recognized that it also exists in every single human being. And so that's the, that's always there for me in the background. And that's why I, I don't, I, yes, I'm a proud black woman, but being black isn't my only experience. It isn't even all of who Layla is. Right. And when I die, that's not something I take with me. Um, and so recognizing that that exists within every other human being as well has been very, very important for me. And I think it helps me to talk about like privilege as privilege, as opposed to something that's inherently inside of white people that's a part of being white. You know, um, there's a separation for me. I see it as this is how I was conditioned. So, and I was condi conditioned into inferiority. You were conditioned into superiority, and we live in a world that continues to reinforce your superiority. No wonder it is so hard for you to hear what I'm saying, because it goes against everything you know to be true about yourself, and it doesn't connect with what the world is telling you right now today. No wonder yeah. this work is so hard. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I just want to move on then to the topic of your new guided journal, because guided journaling. Um, Reflective journaling is a very big theme also in the first book. You encourage people to write things down and work through things that way. So can you explain to readers who haven't, who haven't got this book yet, how do you help readers through this? And what practical ways does it really help you to get it down on paper? Yeah. So, you know, from day one, Me and White Supremacy has always been a book that you do. It's not just a book that you read. You can definitely read it and learn a lot of... Um, uh, things intellectually and maybe even think about some things and they may cause you to feel some feelings. Um, but what I found with many people is that they didn't want to do the work. They just wanted to read the book and then move on to the next book. Mm -hmm. And um, 
this work isn't just about collecting information. You may read history books, science books, fiction books, poetry, and you collect lots of information. But unless you are doing the work within yourself from the inside out, it is just information. It's not yet creating tangible change in your everyday behaviors. And so uh, I wanted to create the guided journal to reinforce <laughs> to people that this is a book that you must do. And it is a companion for the, for the book. It must be used alongside it. Um, it's a way for people to take personal responsibility for their work, uh, for them to understand that this is a journey that I need to take. Uh, and this is a place to begin the journey. The, the, the journal is a place to begin that journey. Um, and that it's something that you can return to again and again. So all of the questions that are in the original book are in the guided journal with lots of room for writing. Because I really need people to dig deep. And in this space, like this journal is just for you. It's not to be shown on Instagram what you write. It's not to... Um, try and uh, resolve even, oh, got that handled now. I don't do tone policing anymore. You know, I don't, my thinking is not white centered anymore because I did the question on it. No, there's so many layers that it operates at. You even said at the beginning that you found when you read the book, there were more layers for you to, to understand. Um, and we've had people who have gone through the mean white supremacy process several times and each time they uncover something different. And they say they've gone back and, and looked at what they initially wrote the first time and they see, I, I didn't go deep. And I wasn't able to yet. I didn't have the skill to really be able to interrogate my own whiteness and, and white supremacy. Um, and so I want people to use the journal to take responsibility for their work, to dig deep, to do the ugly work. It's pretty for, the journal is pretty for a reason <laughs> because the work is ugly <laughs> and, and it has to be because you're, you are, um, you are showing yourself, you are uh, opening that door to seeing everything that's stuffed behind it that you think is bad or wrong. The um, uh, ways in which maybe you spoke to black and brown people or thoughts and beliefs you had about them, behaviors that you did, things that you were ashamed of that you just threw in the back and you didn't want to think about anymore. And now they have to come to the forefront for you to deal with them and reckon with them. And so that's the, the aim of the, the journal is to provide a space to do the work. You know, I'm very curious because I think this is this is the aim of people who write book of, books about race is to really change people's minds, to draw them out of their existing ways of thinking. In Since the book has come out, have you had feedback from people who've been through this process and what has it been like? Have you seen, for example, people who are very hardened racist have their mind changed? Is that even possible? You know, I don't think I don't know that they read my book. <laughs> <laughs> The ones who are very hard and racist. I had, I had some hard and racist read mine. I have to say, I don't know if they change their minds or not. But I think that um, because my work is so, because I'm so adamant on, I'm not going to debate with you on if racism is real or not. This is a space for you to do the work. Um, and, and I'm uncompromising in that. And so it requires a, a personal sense of, I am ready to do the work. Yes, I am scared. Um, I don't know what to expect. I feel really uncomfortable, but I'm willing to begin. And so I think that's why, you know, I don't read reviews. 
but sometimes <laughs> you accidentally see one, you know what I mean? And I remember, I remember one person wrote that they bought my book just so they could throw it in the bin. What? And I was oh like, Oh my God, that's like, terrible. Yeah. Right. But also like, <laughs> but you paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's still a win for you then, Layla. Yes. <laughs> I mean, um, we've only got like, kind of minute or so left but I just want to end by asking you said you had this kind of period of hopelessness earlier this year what now as we enter 2021 then what are you hopeful about yeah so I am uh I've been writing um a couple of news I've been writing newsletters recently about hope every time I write it's about hope how I make hope like how I plan it into my days and into my months um, how um, I recently turned 37 and it's what I'm committing myself to over the, this next year of my life, that hope isn't something outside of myself that I need to go find or that it's just this fluffy thing. It's actually something I have to live. I have to live hopefulness uh, by showing up in ways in my personal life, uh, with my family and in my work that show that there is a way. Yes, we, we need to tell the truth about what the world is, how it works, who is harmed, who is privileged. We need to be radical truth tellers and we need to go do the work to move, to move through all the, the pain and to find our way to, we need to build a, a world that we haven't yet seen together. And that requires us to go beyond where we are now, just within ourselves. So that's, that's where I'm getting hope from is like how, how through my podcast can I offer hope? How through the book can I offer hope? Um, how can I show up in ways that are joy, joy is hopeful, you know, um, living with a sense of um, like honoring my inner child, that is hopeful. Um, and, and looking for ways every single day to rescue myself when I see myself spiraling because that, we do, you know, we talked about the Black Lives Matter movement this year and how it was sparked by George Floyd's murder. And sadly, it's not the first time nor the last time that that will happen and we will spiral again. But we have to know that we can pick ourselves back up and keep moving forward. The people who came before us kept moving forward. And that's why we have the world we have today. And we owe it to future generations to keep moving forward too, so that they can have a different world. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Leila. It's been such a pleasure listening to you for the last hour. I could listen all day, but oh, okay. our time is up now. And I just want to say to everyone, please buy these books. They really should be read together, obviously, um, because this one is a is and buy this one. conjunction with it. <laughs> but you one. get it for free anyway if you go to the old bookshop. Um, but it's been such a pleasure and more power to you. I really, I mean, you're very brave in what you do. I don't think I could write the kind of way you do because it's so brave and provocative and important in in the way that you get your ideas across um so like i said buy the books and happy holidays everyone